0: To Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian, and I'm so glad that you could join me again this week. Today we're going to be discussing a very popular figure in church history. You might have already heard of him. His name is Jonathan Edwards. You might be surprised we've covered a lot of people on church history in the realm of evangelicals and reformed church history, and we haven't uh, covered Jonathan Edwards, and I figured today's the day to do it. Let's dive in a bit into his life, but for the most part look at one of his works which you probably haven't heard of. As I mentioned, Edwards is a very famous figure, so I figured for this episode, I would give you a few of the biographical details, just a few, and then dive right into the work. And if you're interested in Edwards more, uh, just uh, three things. First of all, I plan on talking about Edwards a lot more in the future, and as we visit different works of his, different times in his life, I'm sure we'll fill in that biographical sketch as we move through his life in the future episodes. Also... Down below in the description, if you're really interested in his life right now, in addition to the details I'll give, I'll have a link or two with either a biography, a video, maybe both, that really unpack his life and some of those key moments that he's really known for and remembered for. Finally, if you're really interested in Jonathan Edwards and you're really interested on seeing me cover him, just let me know in the comments down below. I'm happy to do a full biographical sketch of his life. That's something I was thinking about doing, maybe a a series on the evangelical revival where I just look at the pure history of those events rather than zooming in on a work I just tell you the details and we talk about it a little bit. Either way, I hope that you could dig in more to Jonathan Edwards in addition to what we cover here, and you can just appreciate the broader scene in history of evangelicalism. Anyway, that's enough of an intro. Let's first dive in and talk about Jonathan Edwards' life. Jonathan Edwards was born on October 5th, 1703 in Connecticut. Uh, Just Connecticut at this point, as uh, I'm sure many of you are aware, this is before the United States became the United States of America. So at this point, Connecticut is just one of many colonies in New England which are directly under the British crown. Jonathan Edwards. Again, he was part of the congregational Puritan tradition in New England. That's something we've discussed on the channel before. Uh, If you remember back, a lot of the Puritans, when they were having troubles with the Church of England back in England, some of them fled to the continent, to the Netherlands, Germany, France, others fled to New England, and some remained in England in underground churches. Well, Jonathan Edwards descends and joins uh, this Puritan tradition that went to New England and took a special stronghold in Connecticut and Massachusetts, which also came up in our Isaac Backus episode. In 1737, Edwards was ordained a minister in Northampton, Massachusetts. As you could see there, uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts uh, strongly connected in terms of their religious history and religious identity. Both were strongholds of congregationalist state churches, which, as mentioned in the Bacchus episode, created some issues for those early Baptists. In 1741, Edwards preached his famous sermon, the one, if you know Edwards, you probably know this sermon, it's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was a big sermon, but I will mention here, people know Edwards for this sermon, it's certainly one of the popular ones, but as we'll see in a moment, Edwards had so many more sermons, really a fine, an amazing preacher, and he spoke more uh, on a variety of topics. He was well known to speak of love and beauty, but the one he's known for is this uh, this striking topic title about sinners in the hands of an angry god moving on from there edwards was a major figure on the american side of the first great awakening also known as the evangelical revival so if you're thinking about the first great awakening or evangelical revival Edwards is really one of the three big names we'll think about, alongside John Wesley, the great uh, Methodist Anglican preacher, and George Whitfield, another Methodist Anglican on the Calvinistic side. Edwards here sort of joins them in a triumvirate, and he represents America, the the colonies being a New England Congregationalist, but very active in revival preaching, evangelistic efforts, and that general uh, tradition, uh, denominational sort of direction we think of when we describe the evangelical traditions. Finally... Just as a general point, Edwards was lauded not only as a powerful preacher, that's what he's largely remembered for, but if you dig into his works, if you dig into the scholarship about Edwards, you'll see that he was also a brilliant theologian, a thoughtful philosopher. That's a big deal in a lot of circles. And finally, a zealous missionary, something I would love to come back to. I have a, a book describing it I hope to read and maybe share with you all. It's uh, Jonathan Edwards among uh, a band of people, uh, Native Americans, and we could see he was quite quite active with them. So that's Jonathan Edwards. I hope that little introduction just gives you a, a taste of who he is, why he's important to evangelical and church history at large. But now I figured, let's look at one of his lesser known works and just really get an idea not only about Jonathan Edwards thought but we'll get a an inside look into what preaching looked like during this age how preachers approached sermons and what they were saying on certain topics and there was many I could choose from but right now we're going to zoom in on one sermon in particular called the most high a prayer hearing God again I'll say it the most high a prayer hearing God What an amazing title that is. So before diving into the sermon and doing a bit of summary work, I figured let me give you the context of this sermon and that will probably help you better appreciate what's going on here and how it might have been heard at the time and why it was saved and written in the works of Jonathan Edwards. So first of all, it's dated as January 8th, 1735-36. I'm not exactly sure, and I probably should have done a bit more digging around why the two years are given. Maybe it was given January in 1736, and it's close to 1735, or it was preached twice. But anyway, it's around that time, 1735, and it's in January. The notation on The sermon, and the sermon I got it from the works of Jonathan Edwards put out by the Banner of Truth, there's a little note attached to it and it says that this sermon was preached on a fast appointed on the account of the epidemical uh, sickness at the eastward of Boston. So during that time in New England, centered around Boston, there was a major sickness going around and the church called a fast in response to this sermon, in response to this sickness, this epidemic. And in addition, Jonathan Edwards, as a pastor, preacher, he took on this sickness as something that should guide his preaching, pointing him to a text so that he could pastorally comfort the people by preaching on a present need and something they are working through and living through. I did a little bit of research into what was going on during that time in the Boston area and the only thing that I could find that really uh, stood out to me in terms of sickness was the great throat distemper of 1735 and it looks like it went on for a few years there up to 1740 around there and if you're interested in that and what that looked like, what was going on, there's a little link in the description that sort of outlines the sickness and the religious uh, history around there. Of course, this is happening right as the evangelical revival was taking off. So the two things are, are viewed in the, in the same conversation. But anyway, for the sake of this sermon, as we're approaching a sermon entitled, The Most High, A Prayer Hearing God, know that it was preached in response to To a major sickness. That might sound familiar today, and a lot of you uh, over the past year or two, uh, in response to COVID 19, I'm sure you had a lot of sermons which were in response to sickness and death, and maybe certain passages brought to bear in the situation. That was going on in Jonathan Edwards' time, and so in response to a sickness, he brought this sermon. Another important thing to note, that this sermon in the works of Edwards is uh, in a section entitled, Seven Sermons on Important Subjects. So, as I mentioned, Jonathan Edwards, he's known for uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, but he had so many other sermons. If you get the works of Edwards, I, I highly recommend it. You'll notice that there are various groups of sermons, and this grouping is seven sermons on important subjects. Just to give you an idea of what else is in this little grouping of sermons, you have one called Divine Sovereignty, and I'll I'll trust you'll understand what that's referring to. Another one on the Pardon for the Greatest Sinners, And finally, the last one, which might be kind of surprising when it's considered seven sermons on important subjects, is the nature and end of excommunication. So excommunication, it's a big deal. It's something that does happen in evangelical churches, but it might be something you're not familiar with today. It's certainly not as often practiced, and I think there's a few reasons for that. Probably people are worried about abusing excommunication, but I think there's also been a general neglect of church discipline in a lot of evangelical churches. Anyway, that, according to Edwards and the people who compiled his works, was an important topic that required a sermon, and it was considered an important subject, so maybe in the future we'll come back to Church Discipline Excommunication, and maybe this will be a sermon I reference. Finally, before diving into the sermon itself, I'll just quickly note that the sermon text, what Edwards is preaching from, is Psalm 65. Therefore, before jumping into the sermon itself, I figured, well, like you might get at church where the the pastor or the preacher reads the text and dives into the sermon, I figured I won't read you all of Psalm 65, but let me read you the first four verses so you get an idea of what's going on and maybe understand why during a time of sickness, Edwards would turn to this text and the topic he gets from it. Let me read you four verses. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near, to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. That was, again, Psalm 65, verses 1 to 4, and I read it from the ESV version. And just uh, to pick a a line there, you'll notice that right near the top it said, O you who hear prayer. That, of course, is where the title of the sermon comes from. Again, the Most High, a prayer-hearing God. Let's dive into the sermon now for the rest of our time together and just look at its flow, its general themes, and how Edwards approaches preaching a sermon like this. I'll largely be reading quotes. Uh, I'll have them up on YouTube on the screen so you can follow along. But as I'll note at the end, I won't cover everything in the sermon. I uh, I will give you the highlights, but I'll also leave a couple highlights even out so that you're encouraged to read the sermon for yourself. It's not too long. You might even skim it if you so choose, but it's worth checking out, especially one of the key things I won't be talking about is Edward's application section. I recommend you check that out. I'll have a link to this down below as a web page. So how does Edwards open? Just a few lines into the sermon, he says the following. In the verse of the text, there is a prophecy of the glorious times of the gospel, when all flesh shall come to the true God. As to the God who heareth prayer, which is here mentioned as what distinguishes the true God from the gods to whom the nations prayed and sought, those gods who cannot hear and cannot answer their prayer. The time was coming when all flesh should come to that God who doth hear prayer. Hence we gather this doctrine that it is the character of the Most High that He is a God who hears prayer. There's a lot going on there. So of course, Edwards being a a revivalist preacher, he picks up on that all flesh shall come. He's reading this psalm and thinking about the gospel. He's thinking about the promise of the gospel that God will gather the nations to him. And in addition to that, he points out that this is truly what separates God from all the false gods, the idols. He'll talk about it a bit more. We'll talk about it here a bit more. But he's making this clear. Not only does this passage have gospel implications, it also points out to what makes the Christian God, the true God, the only living God. And that characteristic, that feature, is that he is a God who truly hears prayer the time was coming, as he writes, all flesh should come to the God who doth hear prayer. It's interesting to note here, I'm not sure if I mentioned it on the channel, but in a lot of the ways in a lot of ways the evangelical movement and the evangelicals themselves saw their movement, that revival, that awakening as an answer to prayer. My church history professor from seminary, doctor Hakin, mentions that in a lot of ways, and I'm not sure how directly this was commented upon. The Evangelical Revival, which Edwards was a major part of, was an answer to the prayer of the earlier generations of Puritans, the Puritans who were looking for the rise of true, fervent religion. That was fulfilled in the Evangelical Revival, when all sorts of towns, entire states and counties would turn to the gospel. So it's interesting, at the heart of Evangelicalism, as it's coming out in this sermon as we see here, is not only this gospel evangelistic all flesh should come, but it's this deep connection with prayer. All flesh shall come to the God who hears prayer. Anyway, that's how Edwards opens. It's interesting now to turn to how Edwards explicitly outlines where the sermon is going to go. So, and this might be a little point of comparing historic evangelical preaching to evangelical preaching today. I was trained as an evangelical preacher today to generally have a few points in the sermon. You have a text, you outline a few points, but you never explicitly state them. You just move through them, and it's sort of a a three-point sermon where you have three equal points that really unpack a passage uh, exegetically and expositionally. Edwards' approach is pretty different. As you can see on the screen, as I'm about to read, he doesn't really have three uh, equal points Rather, he has a logical argument. His preaching takes the form of an argument that moves to, one, a starting point to an ending point, rather than there being three separate points under a text being preached. He says, I shall handle this point in the following method. One, show that the Most High God is a God uh, that hears prayer. Two, that he is eminently such a God. Three, that herein he is distinguished for all for all false gods for give the reasons of the doctrine so again rather than there being a three point exposition it's so incredibly interesting there's rather preaching takes the form of a progressive argument so i don't know what to make to make of that i probably wouldn't preach a sermon where i lay it out like that but it's interesting to read and it frankly it makes it easier to read for the sake of learning doctrine And I don't know how it would be heard, but I'm guessing this gets into audiences back then, being able to really concentrate, having traditional training in logic and rhetoric so that they could follow an argument. But by all accounts, we know of Edwards. He must have been quite effective at doing this. Anyway, that's where Edwards is going. Let's see how that plays out. Edwards starts with this first main point. And I'm quoting here from various sections. Feel free to follow along. If you open the text, you could use a little search function. But Edwards starts by saying, Here it may be inquired what is meant by God's hearing prayer. There are two things implied in it. First, his accepting of the supplications of those who pray to him. Second, he acts agreeably to his acceptance. So what is the foundation that what it what does it mean that God hears prayer that God is a God who hears prayer? Well, first of all, God allows that people come to him with prayers. So he says, "Hey, bring bring your supplications to me." He accepts the supplications. And secondly, when he accept when he accepts the supplications, he says, "Yes, you're allowed to come to me." He then acts agreeably. He doesn't say, "Yes, you're allowed to come to me," and he then suddenly goes, oh, why, why'd why you bring this to me? Or, oh, the, this is the worst thing ever. God accepts prayers and acts agreeably to prayers. And Edwards unpacks that. And it might seem like a, a no-duh kind of point. But this, again, is really laying the groundwork in a logical fashion. Fashion Going through the text, I encourage you check out the sermon. He makes it clear foundationally that God not only accepts prayers, he acts agreeably to prayers. He doesn't get upset that we're coming to him with prayers, and he allows us to come to him with prayers. So that's the foundation. Where do we go from there? While we laid the groundwork that God is a God who hears prayer, but Edwards now argues that he is a God who eminently hears prayer. This is eminently, he. this is a major characteristic of God. This is a major, quote-unquote, feature of our God. Not only does he hear prayer, this is a critical aspect of Who God is as we know him. So not only does he allow us to come to prayers, he acts agreeably. Here's why Edwards believes that this is a foundational, fundamental aspect of the Christian, the true God. So first reason, in his giving of such free access to him by prayer. So it's easy to go to God in prayer and we'll come back to that in a moment. Second, that God is eminently of this character appears in his hearing prayer so readily how do we know this is an eminent character of God? Well, he hears prayer readily. Third, the Most High is the eminently one that hears prayer. And this appears by him so uh, giving so liberally in answer to prayer. We know this is a critical aspect of God or feature of God or however we want to phrase it properly because he liberally answers prayer. Fourth, that God is eminently of this character appears by the greatness of the things which he has often done in answer to prayer. We know that this is a critical aspect in our understanding of God because he answers the big and great things. He doesn't just hear prayers and answers the small one. No, he'll answer big, massive prayers. Finally, the fifth point, this truth appears in that God is, as it were, overcome by prayer. So it's clear from the biblical text that prayer is important to God. And of course, throughout all this, and as we'll see in Edwards later, we're right now just summarizing these points, but Edwards is incredibly careful to speak in such a way which respects classical Trinitarian language and theology. But let's just unpack a few of these points. What makes God eminently a God who hears prayer? What makes this a critical feature of our relationship with God and who he is in his being. Well, just turning back to that first point that he gives such free access to him in prayer, one of the passages that Edwards points to is Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. I'll just read verse 16. It's probably a verse if you're an evangelical you're familiar with. It goes as the following, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So God is a God eminently who hears prayer because he gives free access to him in prayer. And how do we know he gives access, free access to him in prayer? Edwards points to a lot of passages, but Hebrews 4, Christ as high priest, we know that we can draw near in confidence to the throne of grace. That is a sign of a, a clear part of the argument why God is eminently a God who hears prayer. Let's zoom in on that third point where we know the Most High God is eminently a God who hears prayer because he gives so liberally in answer to prayer. And to make this point, Edwards turns to the passage, James 1, 5-6. I'll read verse 5, and again, it might be familiar. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We know the Most High God is eminently a God who hears prayer because he gives so generously in response to prayer. That's a a critical aspect of the God we know. Let's look at the fourth one just to highlight again how Edwards argues. Uh, And this is the point where... Uh, he responds to great prayers and he turns to edwards turns to genesis 32 the story of jacob and esau jacob is returning to the land esau meets him with uh, an armed band of soldiers and well horsemen and jacob is so scared that esau the guy that he uh he cheated is going to vent vengefully strike out and lash out against him which is what Honestly, we would all expect at that point, Jacob prays, and we see that God not only prevents Jacob from being killed by Esau, but Esau welcomes him with open arms, and it's this big reunion where it's just so friendly and loving loving, that the way we know, the only way that Esau didn't kill Jacob and it turned out so well is because God, in response to Jacob's prayer, turned Esau's heart he spared him from the vengeance that we would all expect in that situation so anyway that's how Edwards after laying the foundation that God is a God who hears prayer he argues he is eminently so by these five points and points to various scriptures as I just uh, gave you a few examples so where do we go from there well this is Edwards portion now that this God the most high eminently being a God who hears prayer this signals a Key distinction from the true God, the actual God, the living God, the Christian God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from all other false conceptions of God/slash gods. Edwards writes this: "Herein the Most High is distinguished from false gods. The true God is the only one of this character. There is no other of whom it may be said that He heareth prayer." So the true God, the Christian God alone, is the only one of whom it can be said He hears prayer. And Edwards here, he highlights a few uh, responses. So first, he looks at idols. Idols are but vanity and lies, Edwards says. In them is no help. As to power or knowledge, they are nothing. As the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 8.4, An idol is nothing in the world. As to images, they are far from having power to answer prayer. That they are not able to act. They have hands and handle not. Feet have they, but walk not. Neither speak they though they through their throat. They, therefore, that make them and pray to them are senseless and Scottish and, and make themselves, as it were, stocks and stones like unto them. And Edwards here cites Psalm 115, 7, 8 and Jeremiah 10, 5. Powerful argument here. Edwards says, God hears prayer. Unlike the the idols. People make idols, people make images, and you can imagine all the different religions that do make idols and make images, and Edwards is saying we know from scripture that these things don't hear prayer, and frankly, we know from experience that these things don't hear prayer. They certainly aren't answering them. They certainly aren't helping in time of need. That alone is the dominion of the true God. Edwards goes on to make a few other points. Just to highlight briefly, Edwards writes, As to the hosts of heaven, the sun, moon, and stars, although mankind may receive benefit by them, yet they act only by necessity of nature. Therefore, have no power to do anything in answers to prayer. So The sun, the moon, the stars, they're great, they're beautiful, they're important in our lives. People would travel according to the stars. The sun keeps us warm, lets us grow crops. The moon lets us see a bit at night and it keeps the tides regulated. That's all important. But Edwards notes, you don't pray to them. They're important. They're beautiful. They're large. They're amazing. But they don't actually answer prayer. Frankly, they only work as they were designed to work. They don't have any power in themselves. They were set up by God and are doing as they function. So, don't pray to them. They're great. They're amazing. But they don't answer prayers. They do simply what they were designed to do. Finally, Edwards makes this point, And devils, though worshipped as gods, are not able, if they had disposition, to make those happy who worship them. And they can do nothing at all but by divine permission and a subject to the disposal of divine providence. So even the devils, and here I think Edwards is pointing out all the other spiritual beings that people might worship that aren't idols crafted by hands or the natural created things that made by God, all those other gods people might have are devils. And frankly devils, while they might have power, they don't first of all want to make us happy. They don't want to answer prayers in that sense. And if they were to answer prayers in that sense, it wouldn't be for our benefit. That's the first point. The second point is Even if they were to answer prayer in a sense and with their malicious intent, they only do so by divine permission and at disposal of divine providence. They're only doing or working these things if God, the true God, allows them to. And it's in the grand scheme of his providence that even the devils, the false gods, are a part of God's plan, which is great and glorious and ultimately for the good of all those who love him. So that's a powerful point and it's something certainly we can see throughout the Old Testament and I think throughout history. A classic example, of course, would be Job where Satan, uh, the accuser, goes to God and he needs God's permission to torment Job. And the understanding here is that all created things, including the devils, can only act by God's divine permission and everything that's in creation and working in creation, thinking in creation, while they might make free choices or bound choices, however you want to talk about it, ultimately... It all fits into God's divine providence. So a powerful point from Edwards, if you're thinking, man, that's a lot. Again, this is a summary. Read the sermon yourself. I have that link down below. It's worth your time. Finally, I'll just highlight, in response to a sermon, and this is a very traditional thing in sermons, where Edwards, understanding that there might be criticism or questions, he just takes them head on in the sermon. Again, that was something I was trained to do as an evangelical preacher today, but we're not trained to be this explicit. I would never say, inquiry one, what blah, 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 what's going on here? Or objection one, blah, 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 blah. That was very much a traditional way of speaking where today we might say something like, well, you might be hearing the sermon and you're probably thinking this, or you might hear the sermon and you're probably going, whoa, I never heard of that. So it would be indirectly addressing questions and objections. But here, as we can see and are about to read, Edwards states them explicitly and takes them head on. I'll give you one example. There's another big one in the sermon itself. Inquiry 1. Why does God require prayer in uh, in order to the bestowment of mercies? So basically, why does God make us pray uh, if he's going to give us mercy anyway? What's the point? First point in response is the negative. It is not in order that God may be informed of our wants or desires. He is omniscient and with respect to his knowledge, unchangeable. So clearly our prayer is not for benefit for God. He, He knows what we want even before we say it, of course. He knows everything. And it's not like God hearing our prayer is going to think about things differently. Oh, they prayed and made a persuasive argument and... No, God is unchangeable according to his knowledge. So it's not for God's benefit that we are praying so that he can know what we need or he can be convinced by us. So why do we pray in this bestowment of mercy situation? Two reasons Edwards gives. First, with respect to God, prayer is but a sensible acknowledgement of our dependence on him to his glory. So through prayer, we promote the glory of God. We do It's a form of worship. We're doing what we should be doing, and we're ascribing worth to God. We're saying, hey, you're the only one who can answer prayer. It's putting glory on God's name. That's a key reason why we pray in order to the bestowment of mercies. The second reason, it's with respect to ourselves. God requires prayer of us in order to the bestowment of mercy because it tends to prepare us for its reception. How many times can we think of in our lives where we give a person a gift and they're not ready to receive it or they don't understand how to use it or make sense of it? Well, that's prayer and mercy, God's mercy. Prayer helps us prepare to receive the mercy of God, get in the right mindset to receive God's mercy so that we can act properly in response to it. Anyway, Edwards goes on deeply into those points. I think you could see where he's going and how logical and reasonable and how clear his argument is throughout making these grand points that the Most High is a God who hears prayer, eminently so. Anyway, I'll leave it to you. Check out the sermon. There's a lot more detail that could be covered throughout what we've discussed, but there's also more points. There's another inquiry, and the entire last section is application. I encourage you. I'm, I'm not your teacher. This isn't a class. I can't give you homework, but I recommend in the description, check out the sermon, read the application. I'm sure it will be of great use to you. Anyway, that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this very brief look and introduction to Jonathan Edwards. Again, we'll revisit him in the future. But I also hope that you enjoyed this discussion of this sermon. I hope not only it introduced you to historic evangelical preaching out of the Puritan tradition, how they spoke a little bit, how they framed their sermons and their arguments at large, but I hope it also encouraged you to know God and to appreciate that our God, the Most High, is a God who hears prayer, and that's eminently a feature of his character. That's a character of his that we should look to and trust in and depend upon and know that he's a God who accepts our prayers, acts agreeably, and is so generous in response. He answers great prayers and he freely calls on us to take our prayers to him, to take our supplications and intercessions to him because he will be so generous, so merciful, and so gracious in response. And that's something I hope that you will now view prayer in light of that and that this This discussion will encourage you to take up prayer either more consistently, more often, or to encourage those around you to pray together. Prayer is a big deal, and I hope that my channel and this discussion will help you appreciate that all the more. Anyway, that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope that you will do some study further, that you will check out this sermon, and that you will talk about this with other people and encourage them to think more about prayer. Anyway, that's it for now. I encourage you, if you enjoyed the channel, leave a like, hit the subscribe button, share it if you're so inclined, but more importantly, I hope that you will enjoy me again here on Christian's Colloquy for whatever we talk about next. Take care.